radio without the static. Email your questions and comments to lynn at pghcitypaper.com. And now your host, Lynn Cullen. Ah! Oh, it just stopped, I think. Sometimes it stops and starts. Hello, and welcome to the Lynn Cullen Show. We just had a uh, fire drill, which, as you know, uh, happens every once in a while. Um, uh, first things first, uh, it's a Tuesday, and that means my sister Susan is supposed to be joining us, and supposed is the applicable word here because we're having difficulty with the phone um, system. Can people still call in to the show? No? Oh, shit. I'm being told no. Well, welcome back. <laughs> it's just it's just like uh old times. S N A F U. Uh Oh shit. So, sorry guys, it's just me prattling on. Um something I'm not thrilled about, but let's just do it. Um, I'm going to save this because something I want to talk to my sister about. Uh, the, the news being uh, that the uh, medical marijuana dispensaries here are actually closed because apparently when they opened, there was such a run on, on their inventory that it's it's gone and they got nothing left to refill it, so they had to close. Close. Um, this is really good planning. Uh, however, uh, I, I had wanted Susan to be here to talk about it. We'll try to get this fixed, and maybe she can come on tomorrow. Uh, because Susan and I, while I was in uh, California, uh, as was she, we uh, went to a uh, dispensary uh, there. Uh, as you know, it is uh, legal in California to sell marijuana uh, for recreational use as well as medical use, and you do that at the same place where we went. And uh, I just wanted to share with you uh, my experience, but uh, I was going to wait till Susan <coughs> got here. It was amazing. I mean, it was really amazing, extremely professionally done, uh, an extraordinary array of things. I did buy some medical uh, stuff uh, without a prescription. <laughs> um, I I did buy a um, a jar of um, cream that is supposed to help uh, arthritis pain if it's you know put on the skin, and I bought that for a friend. And um, another, and then we bought some more for another friend who has uh, MS. And uh, man, there was just uh, everything there you can imagine. There's even stuff for your dog. <laughs> if your dog has anxiety, if your dog has, uh, you know, who knows what. Anyway. Um, since uh, I've been pretty much on the wagon, I didn't uh, 
I didn't buy much of anything for me, uh, but I, I, I did um, try a little edible, which was, as edibles often are, uh, more than I thought it would be. Um, and, and so it, it's a riot. Pennsylvania apparently started this without, uh, without understand. How could they not know the, uh, the demand? I mean, the demand is huge, huge. And uh, by the way, when you go in, uh, in California, the first thing you do is you give them your driver's license. And they take down all information that goes on a record. So there's a record in California that Lynn Cullen uh, was there, and I suppose a record of what I what I purchased. Um, and and the interesting thing is, I mean, the assumption would be that I was simply visiting and that. I was going to be taking this stuff back to Pennsylvania where it is not legal. And uh, that assumption was correct. <laughs> I packed it and flew with it with no problem whatsoever. And on the California side, they don't give a damn. And uh, the TSA, I was TSA pre, breezed right through. And... Um, so I was able to come back with my gifts uh, for folks. Anyway, I I said I wasn't going to talk about it without Susan here, but I think I just did. Uh, well, I hope uh, Pennsylvania gets its act together, and I hope it's not one of the last uh, states to to realize the extraordinary bounty of tax revenue that clearly California is taking in with this stuff. Amazing. And the, uh, by the way, the people who waited on us were just wonderful, extremely knowledgeable, um, professional. Uh, I, I was very, very impressed. So, just saying. Um, also, a, a programming note for this evening. Uh, WQED, actually all of PBS, it's not a local show. Uh, WQED will be uh, showing uh, It's You, I Like, and uh, that's at 8 o'clock, and that is uh, about, of course, Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. It is... Uh, I think um, I think Michael Keaton is maybe the uh, the main guy narrating it. I believe he did work when he was a Pittsburgh kid. Uh, he did work uh, with Fred Rogers and uh, on the show. And uh, this is to mark the 50th anniversary of uh, of the premiere of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. Um, I can't believe he's been gone for 15 years. I, re I just can't believe it. But it, that's what it is. He died in 2003. <coughs> I'm sorry. I still have residual effects of this horrible thing I had, a respiratory uh, infection. 
anyway, um, so forgive me if I continue to do this tickly kind of a cough, which is driving me crazy. The uh, New York Times, uh, in a piece on uh, this uh, airing tonight, said that uh, Fred Rogers is uh, quickly becoming, uh, we thought he already was, a pop culture figure that another documentary about him debuted at Sundance this year. And uh, and that's called Won't You Be My Neighbor. And then they also noted that uh, Tom Hanks, as we have noted, is uh, starring as Fred <coughs> in um, a movie, a biopic uh, called You Are My Friend. And also the U.S. Postal Service is coming out uh, this month with uh, a Fred Rogers stamp. So um, it's interesting, and I think one of the things that if this is becoming a cultural moment for appreciation of Fred Rogers, I don't doubt for a minute that it's because he exemplified everything that our president does not, right? Empathy kindness, civility, and the contrast of that wonderful man who did so much good in the world and the man who now sits uh, in the Oval Office is its as black and white as uh, a contrast can be. And so maybe there's a, a yearning to see a man who had so much power, wield it in such a gentle and kind manner. Apparently on the show, there's going to be, I, I think they're going to redo the time that Fred went to uh, see one of his biggest fans, who was not human. Uh, this biggest fan was uh, the famous Coco the Gorilla, who was that incredible female gorilla who was taught how to communicate with humans through sign language. And um, Coco is no longer with us, but she, while Coco was alive, she watched Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood faithfully. She loved it. She loved him. And so the people around Coco who normally did not allow, you know, civilians and people coming in from the outside to uh, come into her environment, they contacted Fred and uh, asked if he would uh, come and meet Coco that it would be a great thrill to her. And this was back in 1998. And Fred, of course, said yes. And uh, off he went to the Gorilla Foundation. And he did a, a week-long uh, series on uh, his visit with Coco called uh, You and I Together. And 
when Fred walked in and when Coco saw who was standing there, she just, she got so excited, clearly recognized him immediately, and uh, unzipped his sweater. <laughs> and and he gave her a harmonica as a gift, and she starts playing it. <coughs> Amazing. And where did I read? Was it in the Post-Gazette on Sunday? This wonderful story written by a, a woman who, as a child, had uh, suffered from just constant, horrifying seizures. And doctors told her parents that the only cure was literally to remove half her brain. Can you imagine? One whole hemisphere of her brain was to be removed. And this is a child who, because of her condition, didn't really have many friends, couldn't regularly attend school. And so she, too, like Coco, found solace in Fred and his program. And when she was heading off to Baltimore to have this surgery, her mother got in touch with the people at uh, here in Pittsburgh and asked if there and told them what was happening and asked if there was something that Mr. Rogers could maybe sign an autograph, write her a note or something that would mean so much to her. And of course, instead, he called her and talked to her. And she told him she was afraid. And <coughs> what better person to, to say, I'm afraid? And after her surgery, it's not said in the article she wrote, but it's Baltimore, and she said Dr. Carson. So it must it was Ben Carson. Dr. Ben Carson, our now head of housing and urban development, but who who has changed in my head, uh, you know, when what a brain surgeon means. You know, I say, hey, I'm not a brain surgeon, meaning I'm not a genius. Um, it, it, it's, it's really blown my mind how you can have the, uh, the genius to do what Ben Carson did in an operating room as a doctor and be such a, a, a vacant, almost fool, uh, in the political realm, at least to me, it seems that way. But Ben Carson did the surgery and then I guess... Initially, things didn't go well. Her brain swelled. She went into a coma. Fred called every day. Talked to her mother, prayed with her mother, called every day. And then one day said to the mother, I, do you mind? I'm, I want to come see her. And the, she's in a coma, Mr. Rogers. You know, there's no way that she'll know... I don't care. I want to come and see her. And Fred got on an airplane here in Pittsburgh, flew to Baltimore, went straight to the hospital, 
came in with all kinds of his, he came in with a violin case or something, a clarinet case, I think, that he had stuffed full of uh, puppets, you know, King Friday and all the stuff. And and she was still in her coma. And he brought her all this stuff. And as she said, you know, you want the miraculous, I woke up and there he was. But that didn't happen. She remained in a coma. He left all his stuff with her and flew back to Pittsburgh in the same day. He had just flown there to see her. And since she wrote this piece I read, and perhaps you did too, obviously she rallied, and obviously the operation was a success, and obviously taking an entire hemisphere out of somebody's head does not prevent them from going on to live a full life as this woman did and has continued to do and uh, and and wrote this beautiful beautiful piece Fred I was thinking today uh, somebody had suggested you need to have Sally Wigan on to talk about Adam Lynch's passing uh, for those of you who don't know, Adam Lynch uh, was a colleague of Sally's and mine at uh, WTAE Television and uh, was somebody who was on television in Pittsburgh from almost day one. He was an anchor on all three stations here, and uh, he finished his uh, TV career at WTAE, lucky us. We had the... Uh, the delight of having him in our lives. So I was thinking about Sally, and then I saw this today about Fred, and I thought, geez, uh, I'll try to see if Joe, I know Joanne, is, his wife, is extraordinarily busy uh, right now. Uh, it's, I think, a full-time job being the widow, <laughs> Fred Rogers, constantly being asked to you know, be part of all of these things that continue to go on, thank God, in uh, in his name and uh, on his mission. And and so I, I will try, okay, to, as I said yesterday, I'd really like to get more guests in. And, uh, and so that's what I'm going to try to do. Um... In fact, Bob has just emailed me saying, I'm sure your audience is curious to know what your relationship with your now late colleague Adam Lynch was like. Well, I have to tell you, I and I saw it in the obituary that they ran. Somebody stole my, my comment. But it's okay, because the guy who stole it is constantly giving other people uh, clever little things to say. Um in the obituary that was written uh, in the Post-Gazette, um, somebody said what I always said about Adam. He's the oldest cub reporter in the world. And I say a cub reporter being, you know, a new reporter, eager, so excited about everything. Oh, I'd love to cover that fire. Oh, I'd love to do that. And that's how Adam was. He was much older than me. He was old enough to be my dad. And I would watch him, like, get excited. It didn't matter what the story was. He was always just 
he was like he reminded me of like you know the the Dalmatian at the firehouse. <laughs> as soon as the siren starts, wow, bounding onto the fire truck. That was Adam. And I mean to still have that level of passion about your job until the the very end is amazing amazing and let me just say this he was just a wonderful guy just i mean you know i know when people die everybody says oh he was so wonderful oh he lit up a room i oh, this that and the other no adam was just the nicest human being imaginable uh he had this you want he had the most incredible voice uh incredible voice but he had this rib cage. I mean, he was physically built in this strange way. So he had a rib cage that, like, sort of protruded. And and I think is what gave him, he probably had some amazing diaphragm or something. He was built differently. <coughs> and my other sense about Adam is if I think about Adam, I think about a case of beer. I don't know why. But it seems to me Adam and beer were th- something, too. <laughs> I can't quite remember Sally Wood. Uh, just a delightful, 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 delightful human being. And I was always thrilled uh, after his retirement to see that he would often write letters to the editor or op-ed pieces. He remained absolutely, he remained the Dalmatian. Up until the the very end, he was just a wonderful, wonderful guy. <sighs> That's what I have to say. So, okay. Now, for those of you who don't live in Pittsburgh and think, "Jays, enough." <laughs> One of the reasons I don't watch um, cable news anymore, except, I mean, rarely. I admit I tuned it in this morning out of curiosity. After having read newspapers, I I thought, what would be what they are talking about? And when I tuned in, it was pretty much toward the top of the hour, they were talking about this idiot uh, Sam Nunberg, uh, who was, I guess, all over the air yesterday, um, you know, saying, I'm not going to answer the subpoena by Mueller, let him arrest me, and all this kind of stuff. Um, and, I mean, I thought, first of all, this is such a distraction. This is one of those stories that's not worthy of much coverage um and i i laughed out loud when i saw that what they were reporting after i know i'm sure breathlessly last night doing probably wall-to-wall coverage pretty much on them i might be wrong but i think i know of what i speak (coughs) it turns out uh all of that was i mean he's agreed to testify (laughs) He was just having a bad day, you know, freaking out a little bit, I guess, like I understand other people might be doing uh, in the White House. 
I can't bear that you can't call me. <laughs> I'm told we can't work on a fix if I'm on the air. So the call was to just get me on and explain what was happening. And um, I also, well, I'm not going to say it now. Uh, what else I got for you here? I hope you guys don't uh, don't think I'm going to avoid talking about larger issues uh, because I said I want to retain my my chill Zen-like demeanor, which I achieved uh, in the last month. Uh, but of course, I will uh, when I when I feel like it's germane. But I am not going to be the obsessive. I'm not going to let Donald Trump take over my life and my show. I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I mean, he's doing that to so much, so many people, and all of it for ill, you know. So, uh, uh I've, uh, I've sort of exiled him. Not that I don't read about what's happening, but. Uh, mm -mm. Hey, there was a fascinating piece in uh, the. New York Times today. Maybe this has been a local story because I've been gone. Uh, and I wasn't looking at the PG for a week. I mean a month. But there is a case that garnered front page attention in uh, today's New York Times. And it's about a custody battle here in Pittsburgh. Uh, the the people involved, the husband and wife, are divorced. They have uh, dual custody. It seems to me they have three sons, if I've read this correctly, and uh, two, I think, would be uh, older than 18, so they're not really in a, in a custody picture anymore. Shut up! I thought I turned you off. In a custody picture anymore. Uh, but there is their youngest child, who is 17, <coughs> is a couple who lives in Upper St. Clair. And the argument that has brought them to court is an argument about whether their son, 17 years old, should continue to play football for Upper St. Clair High School. And the article is about the fact that increasingly family courts around the United States are finding themselves refereeing this domestic dispute between husbands and wives about whether or not a child should be allowed to play football. Now, I thought for sure, as I delved into the story, that it would be the father that wanted the kid to play and the mother who didn't. And guess what? Uh -uh. It's the opposite. It is the father who is the driving force here. Um, it has ruined his relationship with this son and his other sons, but he feels he's trying to save his son, who has already had three concussions 
One, because of baseball, where he was hit unprotected with a baseball bat. That was the first one when he was, uh, I don't know, he'd be a young teen. And the second and third were during football games. And after every concussion, three, and he's 17 years old. Uh, and I guess uh, a senior now, <coughs> or, or maybe a junior. I don't know. The father thought, you know, I've read enough to know that this, this is not good, and I don't want him continuing to play. And I guess this was in court and not decided, and the kid still was able to play the last season with uh, US, uh, USC, right? Well, that is it, Upper St. Clair, not University of Southern California. Upper St. Clair, and uh, he did and did not get a concussion, but the father's trying to keep him from playing his senior year. And you're sure the kid must be enraged because he wants to. The mother's point is that the kid is, here's her quote, her attorney's quote. Uh, No, she first feels that her son, who's now a junior in high school, is mature enough to understand the risks of the game and to make up his own mind. And guys, I got to say, You think a 17-year-old who loves playing football is mature enough to imagine himself at the age of 40? Huh? You got to be kidding me. It would be the very odd 17-year-old boy or girl who had the ability to imagine themselves older really older and paying the
uh, 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 uh. Oh, you can hear me? Somebody can hear me? Can you hear me now? <clears throat> Did you get my pantomime? Pantomime? So you can hear me now? Margaret says she can hear me. And uh, I don't know. If one other person would simply tell me if you can hear me, I will continue on a pace. Yes, audio's back. <clears throat> damn, damn, damn. Excuse me, I would like to retain my zen-like state. Deep breaths. That's what I found. Breath. Really important. There. Okay. Um, oh, somebody also suggesting I have Chris Potter on the air. I agree. That'd be good because he is departing decamping, getting the hell out of uh, the Post-Gazette <laughs> and heading over to public radio um, over to WESA where he's going to be the head of some, I, I, well, I, I'd have to, we'll have him on. Uh, okay, and now somebody else says no sound. I, you know what, I can't. Uh, guys, you're driving me crazy now. Some it is working. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Ah. So I, there she said it. She said so. I wanted to talk about the the teachers' strike in West Virginia, if I may. First of all, I I was stunned to see. You know, I I tout sometimes that weekly magazine called, strangely, The Week. It is a compilation of articles, editorials, cartoons, everything from the last week. And for people who uh, don't regularly watch news, and I've now become one, um, it's a great way to catch up. Although, for somebody who does a show like this, it's a little too late. At any rate, who did I just read? Who's that uh, comedian, uh, something black? Why am I blanking on his first name? He's older and, uh, why am I blanking? Anyway, it, he said that when he's on airplane flights, he, he takes, or he's going away, takes like four or five weeks that might have piled up, and he goes through them, and he gets a lot of fodder, he says, for his, um, his stand-up. And I'm thinking, yeah, I understand. I get fada there for this. So it's full of little stuff. But I happened to check out the latest edition last yes last night, and they had a story totally wrong about the West Virginia teacher strike. They had this story saying it was over. And I've never seen anything that wrong in in that publication. Uh, I don't know what the hell. They, they decided, they, they, they said, it's over, the teachers uh, going back. Uh, and what they did is they went on what the union leadership told them. They said, yeah, we got a 5% uh, a, um, increase offer. 
The House has passed it. The governor is going to sign it. The only thing that was still not done is the Senate. But everybody seemed to think so. The Senate, well, the Senate didn't go along. And then it turns out uh, the teachers have told their leadership to go uh, that they aren't, they aren't going back till they get everything they want. They're being really militant. Now, this is a very unusual animal. This is not like the teacher strikes we have been used to seeing because it is not just one district. It is every public school in the state. It is the entire state teachers walking. Now... By the way, that is unlawful in uh, West Virginia. Strikes of any kind are unlawful in uh, West Virginia. And uh, the teachers' unions there do not have a lot of power. But I think they figured out we do have a lot of power. (laughs) If all of us walk out the door, we're going to close every public school in this state. And as you know, West Virginia... When you think about organized labor, it is hard not to think West Virginia because so many of the great movies that have been made about labor strife, violence, strikes, horror, have been set, understandably, in West Virginia. Um, But what is happening with this with the teachers in West Virginia now, is pretty amazing. Uh, it's, it's sort of revolutionary. And I want to note something that Michelle Goldberg noted in uh, the New York Times today. This is led by women. The overwhelming majority of the teachers are women. And as we are seeing increasingly, it is women who are becoming the most vocal and visual sign of resistance and reaction to the government, which is mostly men. The rebellion that they have started in West Virginia is looking to be contagious. Uh, Teachers in Oklahoma, who are even more abysmally paid, uh, West Virginia teachers are paid a, a 48th out of the 50 states in terms of their pay. Uh, Oklahoma is 49th, and uh, the Oklahoma teachers are also considering, whether they do it or not, I don't know, a statewide strike. Oklahoma, as you know, is not considered uh, a big labor union state. Also, there are rumblings out of Kentucky Uh, and some talk of the state of Kentucky's teachers walking out. (coughs) This is an indication 
of uprising as is what is happening in high schools right now with high school students after the shooting in Florida. And Michelle Goldberg is wondering if what we're seeing, the teacher strike in West Virginia, the students, if we are seeing these marginalized groups, young people, children, women, being the force that is going to set off a grassroots kind of powerful movement of saying enough. Enough. Too soon to say, but I, as I said yesterday with that Kierkegaard quote, things, we can only sort of figure things out in retrospect, looking backward, do things make sense? But we have to live now and moving forward. <clears throat> so it's hard to say where we're going moving forward. But what has happened in the very recent past, if it continues to snowball, suggests that we may be seeing the beginning signs of a true grassroots kind of rebellion and revolt from people who have hitherto been acted upon, not acted. And if that's true, we're in for quite, quite a year. And Goldberg points out that the other thing is it also could be, ironically, the way that Donald Trump will make America great again <laughs> by reawakening the citizens of this country. And if by his noxious presence that is what we get, then it's unbelievable. And I'm starting to feel that the reaction to him and to his enablers, and to the chaos, and confusion, and discombobulation of just about everything that they have wrought, <clears throat> could well lead to this <clears throat> reawakening, rebellion, resurgence, of we, the people, who the last time I looked 
<laughs> were on paper, on parchment paper, supposed to be the sovereigns of this nation. So, as I've said, I'm trying to look on the brighter side, trying to look for clues of good things. And th they are there. They are there. Thank you, Ellen. It's Lewis Black that uh, is the comedian I was <clears throat> failing to uh, remember. And uh, B also said, thank you, all you guys. Lewis Black, who does get a lot of his stuff from the week. Um, <coughs> okay. I also, I mean, I, I just love sharing things with you that I didn't know. Oh, wait a minute. Before I do that, since I brought up the kids at Parkland, that was the name of the school, right? town. As I said, I was not um, immersing myself. I was certainly aware of the latest horror and then was heartened, heartened to see the reaction of these children. And there, <clears throat> again, there was a, a piece that was written by a guy who said, you know, you got to remember, it is often the young people who wake you up. It's young people, idealistic, still not cynical not having learned to be totally cynical. It's young people who, when in this horrific way, <clears throat> come face to face with what horror the world can bring, react in a absolutely proper way. Whereas we, the adults, so beaten down by it, so made cynical, hopeless, we do not, right? What's the point? What's the point? If after they mowed down all those little children, nothing happened, then what's the point? It's impossible. So these kids are capable still of shock and of outrage. And because they don't know how the system is rigged. Our political system. How intractable the forces that have shaped the world that they now see as appalling 
are. It's because they're young and idealistic that revolutions are often made by young people. And the not young person who wrote this piece I think spoke for a lot of us when he said this ever since Columbine almost 20 years ago now I have absorbed the news of years of more mass shootings than I can count with an ulcerating rage that gradually scabbed over into deadened cynicism. Does that sound like a fair description of what so many of us have felt? <coughs> and he goes on, sounding like us. I'd come to the conclusion that America is a doomed nation willing to spend $60 billion a year on our pets but can't find any money or go to the inconvenience to keep second graders from getting slaughtered. And then he said, and I figured that when a species stops caring for its young, its extinction is not only imminent, but well-deserved. And so he talks about feeling this hopelessness, this bitterness, and this sense of we don't even deserve to live. He says power is like money. It's imaginary. It's entirely dependent upon faith. And cynicism is also a kind of faith. The faith that nothing can change. That those institutions are so corrupt, they're beyond redemption. They're immune to intimidation. Right? But then he says, these kids, these kids. It's been thrilling, he says. I, I'm reading his words because he says what I would say if I thoughtfully and with a muse on my shoulder sat down to write about this as well. It's been thrilling to watch these furious, clear-eyed Teenagers shame and vilify <clears throat> soul-dead politicians and soul-dead lobbyists for their complicity in the murders of their friends. And then he notes how Wayne LaPierre was gibbering like General Jack D. Ripper in Dr. Strangelove about socialist takeovers and hardening our schools 
And he says, you know, you could see the whites all around his irises. And you know what that look is? That look is fear. So he says, keep it on, keep doing it, kids. My message to you is come and get them. Take them down. Take them all down. All those cringing provincials who still think climate change is a hoax, that being transgender is some kind of a fad, and that socialism needs purges and re-education camps. Take them down, those people who think gender roles should be as disfiguring as foot-binding. Take down the vampiric two-party system. Take down the savage theology of capitalism. Rip it all to the ground. (coughs) Yeah, stuff's happening. And I guess I'm out of time. So thank you all so very much for sticking with us. Uh, We fully intend to get things up and running for tomorrow, and I will ask Susan if she can possibly join us uh, tomorrow instead. So uh, have a great day. Remember, uh, if if you want to, to tune in to uh, PBS tonight at 8 o'clock to see the inimitable, wondrous, Fred Rogers. Bye-bye. Not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers. Lynn Cullen Live. Monday through Friday from 10 a.m. to 11 a.m. and archived at pghcitypaper.com. The opinions expressed on Lynn Cullen Live are those of the host and do not necessarily reflect the viewpoints of Pittsburgh City Paper or its advertisers.